Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass? So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. This is Writers on Film, the only podcast dedicated to books on cinema. everybody and welcome to Writers on Film. My name is John Bleasdale. I'm a writer and film critic and today I'm here with Jem Duduku who is the author of Hollywood and History as well as another book which is going to be relevant to our conversation, Napoleon in a Hundred Facts. Have I remembered those titles correctly, Jem? The, the second one's slightly different. It's Napoleonic Wars in a Hundred Facts. But yeah. Ah, Napoleonic Wars in a Hundred Facts. And we're here today to, well, the fact that I made a mistake was absolutely on purpose because uh, we're going to be talking about mistakes and whether they matter. So that's uh, that that was that was an absolutely postmodern self-referential thing that I've just done. And we're here to celebrate, to talk about, to criticize Ridley Scott's new film, his historical epic, or is it? Um, Napoleon starring Joaquin Phoenix, which is out everywhere at the moment worldwide and is currently doing very well worldwide, a little bit less well domestically, though still, I think it's still uh, doing pretty well. Um, I mean, it's still number one at the box office. I think it just might not be quite tracking as high as they wanted it to. At the same time, it's also an Apple original film, and therefore, um, you know, does it have to do that well in terms of its theatrical release? Because ultimately, its principal job is to drive subscribers to Apple. And personally, I think I'd probably 
pop for a monthly subscription to rewatch this whenever it drops on the platform. So it's it, it's probably done that uh, done that job at least as, as far as I'm concerned. So, Jem. As a historian, help me out here. I've read some. Uh, uh, I've read Andrew Roberts's bi- biography of Napoleon. His, uh, I think it's like three three volume biography. I've um, uh, I've done European history at A level and was um, and was awarded uh, a D for my efforts. Even though I loved European history, I did, just didn't seem to manage didn't manage to transfer that love into into good essay writing. Um, so, how, what was your uh, reaction to the film? So uh, I, I think what we're going to do here is talk about it. It is weird that if we were talking about, um, let's say, Ridley Scott's Alien, we would just purely talk about it as a piece of entertainment. Mm. But the moment you do a piece of history, and let's face it, Ridley Scott's done a load of history. His very first movie was set in the Napoleonic era with the Duelist, but then there's also Kingdom of Heaven. Uh, there's 1492. Uh, you know, his previous movie was House of Gucci. So, you know, he has taken various aspects of history, more recent, more more ancient, throughout his entire filmic career. And, and it's really interesting that the conversation seems on this occasion to be more about the history, the facts, than rather, does it look good? Is it dramatic? Does it have a three-act structure, et cetera, et cetera? And he himself has kind of gone to war for, on this. And from my perspective, this has been a really hot topic. Um, just a, a brief aside, this year, as far as I'm concerned, there have been three big historical movies. There's been Oppenheimer, Killers of the Flower Moon, another Apple uh, original movie, and this one now, Napoleon. And what I find interesting is with Oppenheimer, people did take it more as just a drama because everybody knows the atomic bomb was made and there aren't enough people sitting there going, have they got the physics right? Because you really have to know your physics for it. And that made a load of money at the box office, and it was very well reviewed as well. So mission accomplished for everybody there. Killers of the Flower Moon is very much a historical uh, story, but the problem there is it's such unknown history. You don't have endless amounts of books about the formation of the FBI or the Osage native peoples, etc. So people see it more as a drama. But with this, and what I've seen on my feed as a you know a historian who, who sort of like interacts with other historians, Napoleon genuinely is one of those rock stars of history, like mm. Julius Caesar or Queen Elizabeth I. He is so famous that even people who are, in essence, historically illiterate know something about him. And therefore, when you when one of his opening lines that Ridley Scott had when he was challenged about historical inaccuracy was get a life. That's a very inflammatory remark. Also, I don't think it's particularly clever because who do you think is going to be first in queue for a Napoleon movie? It's going to be the people who are interested in Napoleon and not 17-year-olds who are listening to grind music, you know? So telling those people get a life, you don't want to put anybody off going to your movie ever. And we'll, I'm sure we'll go down this route a little bit further. But, but of course, it is being judged by these two different standards. Is it a good movie? And is it good history? So uh, for, for the listeners, we had this conversation before we went um, went online. We've been going backwards and forwards. So from the point of view of John, who is not necessarily immersed in all this stuff, 
Forgetting about the film quality for a moment, what did you learn from the movie, in theory, about Napoleon's career? Um, you know, what his key moments were. So what did you take away about Napoleon the man and the era? Okay, so first of all, I'm not an absolute year zero uh, you know, I, I, as I said, I, I have read some biographies. I have looked into his life, so I'm not completely naive. I recognized some stuff, uh, but what I took away from it as a sort of new take was um, his kind of personality being much, much less alpha and much more epsilon, if you like, that he was, uh, he seemed to be somebody, he seemed to be somebody who was kind of on the spectrum. Uh, and his success that, that he achieved was, there was an element that it felt like he was, a, he was achieving the success partly because everybody around him were 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 just less capable than him at just sort of plowing on ahead obstinately. There seemed to be a hole and he was there to fill it. It it didn't feel I mean, I missed from this. I mean, I don't know what to say in terms of learned. I mean, there were lots of big question marks when I was watching it because I was thinking, did the Battle of Austerlitz actually was there a bit that took place on a lake? I did I don't seem to remember that being or river. I don't remember that. And that seems to be a huge moment. In fact, I think that's probably one of the most visually impressive moments of the film. There were moments that were absolute that felt to me just like even on their surface, even somebody who didn't know anything about Napoleon would sit there and go, oh, come on, that that definitely didn't happen. So the cannon fire hitting the pyramids struck me as sort of blatantly kind of obviously untruthful you know untruthful to the to the napoleonic uh to to the to the historical record so yeah so and uh, you know the the some of the stuff about moscow i guess so i mean i i thought in there were broad episodes that aligned with stuff that i knew about napoleon but it was much more in the detail that I was thinking, I'm not entirely sure I remember this being the situation. Although I did think some of that detail was very telling. Like, for instance, you often hear uh, people refer to him putting down the sort of pro-royalist rebellion as a, you know, a shot of grape. And you think of that as being... For some reason, the word grape makes it sound a lot more pleasant than it actually was in reality. And I think that was a really the phrase that was yeah, the, the phrase that was inaccurately attributed to him is I cleared the streets with a whiff of grape shot, which yeah. sounds very, uh, you know, sounds very innocent, if you like. He mm. never actually said that. But you're quite right. They show you what happens when you turn a cannon into basically a very large shotgun at a bunch of unarmed civilians. Yeah. And I thought that I thought that sort of stuff was was interesting. But I. And I, and again, I don't want to preempt the conversation that we might want to have further down the line. But I, I never, for a second, thought I was watching something that was trying to to say this is this is the real story of Napoleon. I, I, I think that that's absolutely uh, that's absolutely fair. Now, in my book, uh, Hollywood and History, which you know, I I. It, I wrote it a couple of years ago. It came out uh, this autumn. So Oppenheimer and Napoleon aren't in it. I, while I was writing it, I was aware that he was about to prep for Napoleon. And Ridley Scott's in the book quite a lot for his, for his various other historical movies. And this is the thing. If you look at 
all of his, uh, all of his other historical movies. And, and I think he should have said this in the press. He, he should have said, I'm an entertainer first. I'm a historian, a distant second. I hope you enjoy my movie. That's what it's there for. Um, that would have been a much better answer than get a life. Or on another occasion, he told, uh, he, he used the line, the historians weren't there. What do they effing know uh, about it? And it's all like, that is really disingenuous. How did, you may be 85 years old, but you're not 285 years old. How did you find out about Napoleon, if not through history books? So, you know, naughty, naughty. Um, but, you know, he is always an entertainer. I think you said in one of um, uh, a sort of casual conversation on, on the podcast, he's never, you know, it's always, it, you know, some of his projects are more successful than others. I'm looking at you, White Squall. That's uh, mm -hmm. two hours of my life I'll never get back again. But, mm -hmm. you know, it's always good looking. And with Napoleon, there's so many uh, visual clues to or cues to show. You mentioned the, uh, the pyramids. You're absolutely right. That didn't happen. But he said in, in again, one of the interviews, he goes, that's a shorthand for and then he conquered Egypt. And it's like, I get that. It's a very good visual way of saying he's in complete control. Now, in the movie, they obviously addressed hundreds of extras in Mameluk uniforms and stuff like that. When it goes on to Apple, it's going to have an extra hour added to it. I'll be curious how much of it will be, uh, how does Jem say this politely, interesting love scenes between Josephine and Napoleon, and how much of it is battle, because that would be a real waste of money to leave any of the battle footage uh, on uh, um, on the on the editing floor. But at the same time, I can't imagine they would have spent all that money and time dressing everybody up for the Battle of the Pyramids and then do nothing apart from having a CGI shot of the smashing into the pyramids. We will see. We, sh we shall see. Um, but yeah, I, everything you've said, I, I absolutely agree with. I definitely walked out of the cinema last night thinking... I'm looking forward to seeing the director's cut because there's always this sense that you suspend your critical your critical appreciation or or otherwise with Ridley Scott because you know there's a, there's a director's cut coming down the road at some point which Kingdom of Heaven might be a lot better agreed or Blade Runner might be roughly the same or you know or the counselor, I've not seen it. <laughs> so I'm not sure what, what what that is, if it makes much difference at all. I mean, I the thing with battles is a little goes a long way. There's a there's unless you're like Bondachuk and you're going to make Waterloo or War and Peace, this is the uh uh the Russian director who's yeah, if you've not seen his films, they are by far the best uh, representations of, of Napoleonic battles, simply because he uses the entire Ukrainian army to, to uh, <laughs> yeah. yeah. I mean, when people say a cast of millions, I don't think Bondachuk was far off having a cast of millions when he made his, his version of War and Peace, which is on YouTube, I think. So, I mean, if you've never seen it, my God, it's just it's just an amazing uh, piece of work. It's, it's... But, but don't watch it on your phone. You're, you're going to lose the, the the mass of it. You want to sort of like hook it up to your the, the biggest uh, flat screen TV you've got to get that sense of, of awe. 
Oh, absolutely, absolutely. And if you can get a Blu-ray, I think Criterion did a Blu-ray, which is, uh, you know, which would be the, the ideal way of watching it. But yeah, I mean, there, there's, it's weird how repetitive battles can become, and how how the actual how the the film language of battles. Um, so I was kind of interested in this, uh, and I want to get your opinion on this: how un-Napoleonic the battles looked until Waterloo. You know, it was a lot of people sort of running at each other rather than sort of slow marching towards each other in squares. Uh, look, I, I hear you with that. And to, to back you up on that, twice we see Napoleon lead cavalry charges. He didn't do that at all in his yeah. entire career. And and uh, in one of the articles that I ended up writing, so it's been, this movie has been a little bit of a cottage industry for me that I've never had with any movie before because people have, you know, asked me to appear on podcasts or I wrote an article for the Daily Mirror. Um, and, and so, you know, it, it keeps coming up. And it's like, the thing I don't understand is uh, the very first th- uh, sort of conflict you see him in, which is absolutely true, is uh, the Siege of uh, Toulon uh, in 1793. And in that battle is the only time he was in the thick of it because he was a junior officer and he was leading this rather daring raid. And it's the only time he gets wounded in battle. He gets a bayonet through the thigh. And it's like, why not show that? If if you Mm. want to make him an action man, that's the one time it's in the history books. And also having him leading cavalry charges fundamentally doesn't show you why he was a good general. You know, you get generals like Alexander the Great or Richard the Lionheart, and what made them good generals is they were so fierce, and when they got into the thick of it, everybody went, okay, well, if he's doing it, let's let's get in as well, and it works. But Napoleon's one of these ones who who treated the battles like a, ch- a game of chess. So he needed to be up on the top of a hill, and, you know, one of his genuine quotes is never interrupt an enemy while they're making a mistake. You know, he would see that there was a gap on the gap in the forces. And it's like, send in the cavalry now. And then General Ney would go charging in with his cavalry. Uh, so the fact that, you know, if all you know is this movie, it's like, well, he was brave. And it's mm. like, well, no, I mean, he was brave in his own way. Nobody's going to call him a coward, but he wasn't physically brave. He was smart. Mm. And um, you go back to Austerlitz. So right at the end of the Battle of the of Austerlitz, the Austrians did start retreating over ice-covered rivers, and he did fire on those. Ah. Now, according to his own annals, and 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 Napoleon, you know, he had a habit of, you know, look, when he was uh, uh, in exile in Saint Helena, he was going to give the best uh, acquitting of his own uh, performance. He, he, but even he said. 200 men died that way. If you see the movie, it looks like half the army died that way. The, you know, archaeologists have been on the battlefield. They haven't found any cannonballs. Most historians think maybe a dozen guys died that way. The, the reason why Austerlitz is considered his greatest moment is because the Austrians and the Russians were up on the, something called the Pratzen Heights. They're on the hill. And if you're on, if you're on high up ground, that's the place you want to be. And Napoleon amazingly lured the entire army off into a dummy and then went up onto the hill and and completely outmaneuvered these two other emperors it's called the ba- it's also called the battle of the three emperors so that would have looked good you know scott absolutely could have you know done that but instead as one historian said it was austerlitz was turned into a gotcha moment like you know he's closed the trap door ha 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 it, you know it's a bit like the battle of um uh, endor in, in return of the jedi you know it's mm. it's a trap it's like well mm. 
no, that's gross, doing a gross misjustice, uh, injustice to the skill he showed. And the, let's face it, the skill he shows is killing people. It's war. And I did like right at the end when they show you the casualties and say, in total, three million people died. You know, where is this glory thing that we think about? You know, it was just about killing people. What right did France have to conquer Russia? None, mm -hmm. except that he thought he could get away with it. This is this is not a noble endeavor. But we, you know, I think most people kind of like these sort of bigger than life characters doing bigger than life things until you're actually in the army fighting their cause. You know, then you're just cannon fodder. So, what do you feel were? We've already mentioned a couple now. So, what do you feel were the 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 major mistakes that that the film gets wrong? And 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 what were the things that the film got right? <laughs> right. Okay. I'm going to be controversial here because I one of the things that occurred to me as we were watching this, I just thought. Um, well, sorry, I, I mentioned this earlier and then I got off track. What I say in, in Hollywood and history is like the, the, the movies that start flashing up dates and places, what they're saying to the audience is like we've done our research, which means you really do have to do a fair representation of what actually happened. And the one I really rake over the coals is Braveheart because nothing in that is true. Uh, but, you know, so but at the same time, I'm, I was watching the movie and about halfway through, I thought, how can anybody, you know, even if they gave him enough money to do a trilogy of three hour movies, you are trying to summarize a 22 year career that covered three continents. It's impossible. You have to condense. You have to shove it down. But some of the choices are weird. I don't know if they're going to be remedied in the in the longer cut. But the thing that really made his name is his conquest of Italy, which isn't even shown. Now, the the. Um, uh, the the affair with the cavalry officer that actually started while he was in Italy. And this, what I liked about the movie is the dynamic between you might find this weird, but Josephine and, and Napoleon, because at least for the first half of their relationship, she was absolutely in control. Now, what they got wrong in the movie, and we had this conversation the last time I was on. You know, actors are the age they are, okay, and they decided to not de-age them or anything like that, which is the right way to go. So you can actually see their faces rather than digitization. Fair enough. But Wackin Phoenix is the same age as Napoleon at Waterloo. He's the same age as the guy at the end of his career. They picked Vanessa Kirby to play Josephine. Joseph, uh, so Vanessa Kirby is 14 years younger than Joaquin Phoenix. Josephine was 10 years older than, uh, than Napoleon. So we're off by a quarter of a century. Mm -hmm. And it kind of makes sense that this 23-year-old guy at the beginning of his career is kind of he's he's a naive he's naive he's completely innocent i think he's been with one woman in his entire life and josephine has had to survive through the french revolution by using her feminine charms she knows how to use it and she uses it on napoleon and he is completely outclassed and they show that in the movie but the fact that she's younger makes it a bit different and indeed later on in the movie when josephine can't conceive because Vanessa Kirby is a woman in her prime, you assume it's a medical condition. But no, Josephine had hit the menopause. You know, mm. there was a very obvious biological reason why she couldn't have children anymore. And, and, you know, he always loved her. So I did like the relationship. But to some people, I've literally seen a YouTube video, you know, with the uh, thumbnails of a picture of Joaquin Phoenix's Napoleon with just cuck written across it. And I heard somebody else say, it seems to imply that Napoleon was an incel. And it's like we're using very modern language. But absolutely, when he, you know, again, 
Maybe uh, this is in the extended version, but I found it hilarious when I did the research. Napoleon conquers Italy. He's the first person to conquer Italy since the Roman era. It's an amazing achievement. He's 26 years old. And on the way, he spies an Italian palace and he goes, Josephine, I have got a palace for you. And she's off uh, shagging this cavalry officer. And and it's actually the... Uh, uh, the French government who say, uh, you know, he's your husband. He's just conquered Italy for us. Go down to go down to Italy and stay in the nice palace he's found out for you. And it's just like, so yeah, it really does make um, Napoleon look a bit foolish in that situation. And that's true. That That is, that is accurate. But, uh, you know, the, the thing that I, I think probably boiled my blood the most is after the retreat in, in Russia, the next thing we see is he's being exiled to Elba. It's like, you've missed a year and a half. You've missed the largest battle in the whole war, which is the Battle of Leipzig, also known as the Battle of the, of the uh, of Nations. And I get you've got a limited budget, but now you're creating a completely wrong cause and effect. Those two events were separated by 18 months and several campaigns of fighting later. But again, you've only got two and a half hours to tell the story. But again, why did you choose that? There's already a perfectly serviceable movie just about the Battle of Waterloo. Maybe we don't need that again, but maybe you just do it about Austerlitz if you like that that battle so much. Or maybe you do the second half. He's become emperor. Now we see the second half of his, relation, uh, of his career. But to try and do 22 years in even three, three and a half hours, good luck. The sweep of it was, okay, okay. But what did you like about it? <laughs> I mean, you, you've already mentioned the relationship. You already mentioned that, and that's a good thing. Uniforms looking good. The uniforms are looking good. Um, Waterloo is completely wrong. And again, this actually don't, um, it sort of insults um, uh, Wellington. Mm. Uh, the key thing about the Battle of Waterloo is Wellington knew that Napoleon knew how to use his artillery. He's an mm. ex-artillery officer. And so where all the Allied forces were, apart from the Prussians, was on a reverse side of a slope. So he protected let's say 80% of his army behind the crest of a hill. Whereas in the movie, it's you see him being pounded like it's World War One. And, and it's like, how much can the British redcoats take before, before they break? Um, and that's just not what happened. But mm. did I feel the sweep of Waterloo? You know, did I get mm. a little bit misty-eyed as they go into the infant, the anti-cavalry infantry squares with the, the you know, the, the Union Jacks uh, hanging in the middle, the standards hanging in the middle? I mean, that... You know, you have to be a pretty stone-faced Englishman to not feel a little bit of sort of like patriotism swelling at that point. It looked great. By the way, because I know you like my my stuff about rifles and things like that, uh, although the British did have riflemen in the, in the um, uh, Napoleonic era, none of those rifles were that accurate and nobody used scope sights. Those scope sights came in a generation later and we have the hat from the Battle of Waterloo, no hole in it from a sniper. Yeah, I felt that was a bit inconsistent. That felt like uh, something that, that had been, as you say, that it it felt incomplete to me. I, I was expecting that scene when he got his hat shot, that um, Wellington would turn and say, arrest that man. I want him, you know, he 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 should be on a gibbet by the, you know, and we would see something of Wellington <laughs> sort of like a hatred of his own army, you know, and that um, your contempt, not hatred, but contempt of his own army of like, you know, the most important thing is you do what I tell you, not not that you take a pot shot at the other generals and, you know. 
and and also the i mean it, it's called napoleon you said what do i like but so it's called napoleon and it genuinely is about napoleon now that is to the detriment that he had some really competent generals and marshals underneath him i have got no idea apart from duma who's the, the the black one uh the other ones i don't know which one is bernadotte or uh salt or nay or whatever i had no idea who they were uh, there were various guys preening around in the background but it you know they it says it on the tin this is about napoleon and the movie absolutely is about napoleon yeah they, they sort of bigged up his family didn't they and i'd always got the feeling that there was actually quite a lot of rivalry between the marshals and the family because the marshals were getting there on bravery in a land and his family his brothers were getting there just because they were members of his family it was just like oh the fellow the you know the memphis mafia following elvis around i <laughs> Yeah, yeah. I mean, I don't think it necessarily detracts from a, a person in a portrait if you if you include people around them. In fact, I think that sort of disempowers him as a character in that he seems very isolated. He seems to spend a lot of his time in empty rooms. And I, he, this guy's a huge leader. And stri- you know, I mean, he's got to be the smartest man in the room in a lot of different rooms, in a lot of different situations. And you never really got the sense of that there was one great scene where he'd come back to paris and somebody starts talking to him and he goes you know shush 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 i've just come back i found out this this has happened this has happened and now i found out my wife is a slut so and, and he just sort of dominates the room in a way like i don't care about your opinions uh, my my situation is much more important than yours and and it just sort of like the, those moments were really interestingly charismatic but it felt like it felt like something more like Joaquin Phoenix doing a really interesting character character study of of someone who who dressed as Napoleon. <laughs> you know, yeah. I mean, one of the things about Napoleon, which is which uh, was still around in my day when I was growing up in like the 1970s, 80s, is if you had like, uh, I mean, you wouldn't have it these days because of political correctness, but if you had like a comedy like the Pink Panther where the chief inspector has gone crazy and is sent to a lunatic asylum, as they were then called, you would have someone dressed as Napoleon walking through the garden. And that would just tell yeah. you that, you know, that's what, there's a crazy person because the crazy people would think they're either Jesus or Napoleon. It was, but it was that was the cultural power of this image, um, and in a way that 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 maybe isn't quite people aren't quite aware of that anymore because well the 19th century is a long time ago after all. Yeah, and and look, we now got superheroes and, and and things like that. But it is interesting how many column inches have been generated by this movie, and you know I. For all of the historical inaccuracies, I'm loving the fact that I'm having conversations about the Battle of Austerlitz rather than Big Brother. Uh, or, you know, what are you getting for Secret Santa? You know, these things, you know, he did shape Europe for better or for worse. You can't understand the 19th century, which is a big deal in Europe uh, without Napoleon and indeed the effects of him. And his nephew, Napoleon III, ended up running France again. So, you know, he is he casts a long shadow. Uh, and I'm not good. That's not a joke about him being short. I, I feel obliged to say if anybody here thinks that he's short or listening to this thinks he's short, you are believing 200 year old British propaganda. Now, I have no of all the bad things you can cast on your enemies. I think that's pretty tame. And we had very good reasons 200 years ago to be pretty angry with Napoleon. But uh, yeah, that's just simply not true. 
Yeah, the the sort of Corsican dwarf sort of cart, uh, you know, political cartoons, which actually pop up in the film as well. Uh, that he's, yeah. he he keeps getting handed newspapers by his rather <laughs> rather dull witted, you know, aides and valets, so that he can read about Josephine's infidelities. Um, I did love the humor in the film. I mean, let's let's move on to the the idea of the film as a film. And, yeah, and, the, the film and, is a film, and I was going to say that because you said earlier on uh, the joke about, and I found out my wife's asleep. It's like it was laugh out loud funny three or four times for me, and mm. and deliberately so, not because mm. it was bad, but because that's a gag, that's a genuine joke. And the other bit that I thought was really funny, and again, this was edited differently in the um or edited around in the trailer, was the bit where he goes into the uh, console uh, consoles and say, "Shall we vote?" But the first thing you see is he loses the crowd. They're about to kill him. He runs out, him and his brother prat around and go, come on, everyone back in. And then he goes, you know, now shall we vote? Um, and that was genuinely funny. The the, the great line to the British ambassador, you, you, you all think you're so great because you've got boats. And I've heard some people say that's a terrible line. It's like, that's a joke. If you can't tell that that was meant to get a laugh, not just a badly written line, shame on you, you know? So uh, yeah, it, it was... It was funnier than I think any historical uh, epic I've ever seen before. It also concentrated on the private life of the person more than any other one I've seen before. Um, and, and when it was epic, it was properly epic. Can we can we agree on that? Oh yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I think I think there is going to come a time when we're going to have to rethink how we do battles, and we're going to have to go back over, you know. Uh, unlearn some lessons that we learned during Lord of the Rings and things uh, and and try to sort of genuinely rethink, you know, two bunches of people clashing in the middle um, just because I find that, I don't know, I just, I, it just feels like something I've seen a thousand times. But in this situation, I think they managed to make each battle um, impressively different. And I kind of knew what each battle they needed to do. So I knew at the beginning they needed to get the cannons, turn them around and fire them on the ships. I knew the, you know, Waterloo was, I, I kind of had a good sense of what was going on on each one. I, I kind of thought Waterloo might have been the least impressive of all the battles, actually, just in the sense that it kind of didn't numerically, it just didn't look that, um, that there were that many people, ultimately. It looked like... Uh, it looked like a rainy field in Belgium. It, it almost looked like it was uh, um, coming down. You know, <laughs> I mean, was, that's what it was. But... <laughs> yeah, I, yeah, I know, but yeah, I don't know. You kind of have this idea of it being. Oh, there are those stories. Who is it? There's some guy who gets his leg taken off and turns to a general and says, "By God, I think I've got, I've lost my leg." Okay, no, no. So that that I was kind of expect again. That would have fitted well in the movie. So that's Lord Uxbridge and virtually at the end of the film. So he's on his horse next to Duke of Wellington. French cannonball takes his, I mean, this is probably the most British story you'll ever hear. Mm. It takes his leg off from the, uh, just below the knee down, clean off. And his response is, uh, by God, sir, I've lost my leg. And Wellington looks over and goes, by God, sir, so you have. That is real history. Why not use, and I found it interesting in the, 
in the Waterloo movie, they use far more real quotes from both Wellington and Napoleon than in this movie. You know, uh, th th I think there are a couple of lines that I recognize, but almost everything else was clearly a script. And, and fine, that is a creative choice. But mm. Napoleon's really quotable. You, you know, you can mm. stick in some of his lines and they're, they're quite good. Like at the at the Battle of the Pyramids, his opening line to his uh, his uh, his army was soldiers uh, from 40 centuries. These the pyramids look down upon you. And it's like that's a good line that's the beginning of the braveheart speech kind of thing mm. nothing mm, yeah yeah you said you definitely didn't get as i mean he wasn't a people person this napoleon he was kind of like as i said it, it feels <laughs> no. like I, I don't mean this with any disrespect uh to the neurodiverse but it, it definitely feels like he was on the spectrum he was somebody who kind of was was uh, he was good at war and strategy but and he was good at not not caring about lives he was good at sort of as you say sort of proficiently killing people but but didn't seem to be much of a people person and this and and i kind of think that's got to be in napoleon's skill set hasn't it i mean otherwise why would they love him so much i mean you saw that one moment where he's like handing out bread to the common soldiers the soldiers yes, yes and i thought that was brilliant i thought that was a real you know the brave of austerlitz well done you know here you go lads and it, you can see that was like yeah they like him and they have good reason to like him and he's much more comfortable with them than he is with the diplomats and the emperor and the other generals and so yeah, no, I absolutely agree. And I'll be honest with you, the 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 Joaquin Phoenix role that this reminded me the most of, which really surprised me, was Joker. Mm. You know, in the market for investment-worthy bags, watches, and fine jewelry, Rebag is the answer. Rebag is a luxury resale platform where each piece is carefully inspected by experts to ensure quality and authenticity. Use Rebag to buy and sell finds from the world's top brands, including Louis Vuitton, Chanel, and Cartier. Head to Rebag.com and get up to 15% off your first purchase as a member with code REBAGNEW. Shop today at Rebag.com. That's R-E-B-A-G.com. And use promo code REBAGNEW for up to 15% off your first purchase as a member. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. He's sort of, he's almost on the outside of society looking in. He, he's kind of guessing what he has to do in these situations. And and again, about the funny, every single love scene between him and, and Josephine was hilarious and awkward and awful. Whereas um, the scene she has with the cavalry officer is shot in the way you would expect a, a historical epic to be. It was kind of sensual and romantic. Him, he's just... He's just plowing a field, says Jim politely. Okay, I don't, I don't want to lose your uh, to lose your clean rating or anything, but yeah, um, every time I, I actually chuckled. Um, so uh, yeah, uh, I mean, what do you think? Do you, do you think that there was a little because uh, you keep using the term neurodiverse, which obviously the Joker character he was going for as well? Could you see an element of that there? Oh yeah, no, no without uh, without a doubt. Uh, and I, I mean, he's, I mean, his approach to to her i thought was brilliant i really really rated that i really thought the romance in this not, the romance is the wrong word because it's kind of, 
in fact, that's the way I think I would look at this most profitably or most um, uh, uh, most uh, rewardingly is is this film is very anti a lot of stuff uh, generically. I yeah. think, I think it's kind of anti epic. I mean, it does do size, but is it really epic? You know, I mean, it's big. But it's not epic, so I think that might be why you don't have these. This this is a film which is against the big man of history idea, but I'm not necessarily sure it's epic, which has an idea of exalting uh, a moment in history or exalting uh, a, a person. Napoleon, one of the reasons he's popular, is kind of because of this big man in history. Uh, you know the the big man of history who makes all these decisions and as you say molds Europe into a shape of his of his uh, desire. Um, this showed that he did do stuff, but at the same time it, there's this paradox where yes he's a big man doing all these changes, but at the heart at his heart if there is such a thing, there's a kernel seed. There's a there's um he's he's a tiny man. He's he's someone who is inadequate, insecure. He's a doofus. He he can't get down a, some stairs without falling over at one point. You know he, he's sticking his fingers in his ears so he doesn't hear the artillery go off. There, there's um he's a he's a mama's boy. There's all this sort of fragility to him, which which and so what if you give him the famous speech, um and make him into a Mel Gibson character, then that, that's, that's, uh, goes against what, what I think Scott is trying to do here. I look, I, I hear you on that. And I, I, I would broadly agree. I think that, you know, and what I found fascinating, cause he was, let's be blunt. He was such a loser in his private life. It therefore was a brilliant juxtaposition that he was the most feared man in Europe. And then you see how competent he is at something like the bat and, and cold at something like the bottle battle of Austerlitz. I liked that just juxtaposition. And, but I, what I find interesting is how edgy the, the French have been about this and said, this is all just British propaganda. They're showing him blah, 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 blah. But it also, it's worth reminding you that, uh, you know, France banned paths of glory for like 20 years. All right. And that's not even, uh, yes, some people were shot for cowardice in World War One. This is not a specific incident. The, the characters are all made up. And that was still enough for France to go, we're banning this for decades. And it's like, so how would you do it? And and the thing is that when every time they've portrayed, uh, they've portrayed Napoleon, they've portrayed him as a, a fluent French speaker, basically a Frenchman. And it's like, he's Corsican. His first language was Italian. He was te teased in military academy for having this thick Italian accent. He was, interestingly, he was born the same year Genoa gave France Corsica. He in no way grew up feeling, oh, you know, vive la, vive la, la, la revolution, etc. You know, it's, and, and Napoleon yeah, 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 beautiful port. Yeah, it's it's not French. Uh, so, you know, I I did like that juxtaposition. I think you might have been able to give him a speech somewhere because, again, he's competent at this. But he, it's it's almost like saying he knows how to communicate to men. He's got no idea how to communicate with women, and you know, doesn't even know what he wants in life. But I. This thing about this fragility, it's there. If you want to read the papers now, maybe the French feel it's way overdone. And this is the direction that, that Joaquin Phoenix clearly wanted to go. 
but you know again i don't think that if the french did it we would get a very we would get the epic and all of these inadequacies would be wiped away and that's just as bad as having having the simpering guy um you know who's almost doing it to to prove himself a real man to his uh, girlfriend uh which is a fascinating take on history yeah, but I mean, uh, I mean, I love that idea as well. That if he'd been born like a few months earlier, uh, he would never have been able to have the career he did in the French military because he would have wouldn't have been born in France. It literally would have been Italian. So it was um, uh, it's one of those fortuitous moments that um, that happen sometimes in history, or or unfortuitous depending on on your you know i mean there are a whole there's nothing about the peninsula war there's nothing about spain there's nothing about as you say italy and venice so i mean i and i don't have a problem with that i have no problem whatsoever david lean doesn't do the whole of uh, t lawrence's life he does just does an episode which which is uh, which is interesting. I think you can pick and choose and you can do things artistically. Also, I think that idea of let's go against the bit, this idea that a little man with certain, uh, you know, insecurities and fragility can have disastrous effects on the world speaks very much to our contemporary political situation. So there is a sense. Oh, yeah, this absolutely. Is, this is a film which is, yes, it's set in from 1789 to 1815, 1820, 1820 when he died. When when did Napoleon I think it's die? 21. But 21. Yeah, I mean, it, yeah. it does. Yeah, it, yeah, it's it's after the war, but not but not by much. Yeah, yeah, and it's six years later or something. So that would make it 21. Um, there is the sense that he uh, that that this is looking at the populist leaders of today and and saying, look, these guys exude this idea of strength and of aggression and of of hostility. And they're but but you know, they're doing it from point of weakness and they're not doing it for the good of the world. I mean, there's a great speech that he has to one of the um diplomats where he's talking about, I'm a man of peace. I, you know, no one can bring peace to Europe except me. I'm the one who's going to bring peace. And it's like, you're the main warmonger here. Yeah, and it is interesting if you look uh, look at it. His, um, uh, you got Talleyrand, who is his foreign secretary, basically, who was a genius mm. um, uh, diplomat. And what Talleyrand fundamentally understood is, if every time you broke, you you may have utterly crushed the enemy, but if your terms are so punitive, all they're going to want is revenge. And in an amazing way, Napoleon unified Europe like nobody else has in the whole of history. And and so, so if you want to get a little bit historical for a moment, Waterloo was where he finally met his match. But even if and but people have said it was a very close run thing. There were ways that he could have won it, which is true, but it's irrelevant because if he had beaten um, uh, Wellington, the, the the Austrians and the uh, and the rest of the Prussian army and the Russians were on their way. He had run out. He had angered all of Europe, and he he had less of men every single time he fought. He was done. He he was absolutely done. He shouldn't have come back, but he he was gonna because he was Napoleon. And so, yeah, it, it and and it is sort of quite telling about he, he didn't know when to quit and yada yada yada. And and he didn't necessarily listen to the people around him. Um, the you know, his marshals he picked because of their skill. You know, in, in Britain, there was still an awful lot of, oh, you've got enough money to buy uh, a captaincy in the army. 
that's not the best way to run an army or indeed, uh, you know, you're Lord Liverpool. So, uh, you know, you can now become, you know, a general, um, you know, so there were, this is the thing. He is an interesting person. He has flaws and he has strengths. Uh, you know, he, he did reintroduce slavery. That's not a good thing. I don't think anybody's going to say yay slavery, but also at the same time, because he was losing so much money, all of French lands in America was sold to America. It's referred to as the Louisiana Purchase, and that's what turned the 13 colonies into the Americas of today, because it wasn't just Louisiana. It was it was most of the um, drainage area of the Mississippi River. It was a colossal amount of land. Now, obviously, the French didn't have colonies all the way around it. It was very much owned by the local indigenous peoples, but the idea is it gave a, a legal... Um, uh, how, how can I put it? Uh, 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 sort of like a, a, a little legal bow on their land grabs in America. So, he, you know, yeah, pre pretext. Thank you very much. He is so important. And there are things you can do ticks with and things you can definitely do crosses with. And therefore, it, I actually quite liked the fact that this was uh, this was a multi-layered Napoleon that we saw in this movie. But going back to, you know, fundamentally saying, let's talk about the film a bit more. What I found interesting is after seeing it, my family went, what do you think, Dad? And, and you know, I, I told them all about it. And I just realized, I it's like, sure, we all go and see it on the weekend. It's like, no, I'm fine. I, I can wait till it's on Apple and I can see the longer version. Whereas when I saw Gladiator, which has loads of historical inaccuracies in it, but it's also one of my favorite films. It is, it is just an amazing piece of cinema. Uh, I saw that twice in the same week when it first came out. Cause it's like, this is amazing. I want to experience this again, but with Napoleon, it's a good competent film. I'd give it three and a half stars personally. I don't know what you would, you would think, but it's, he's trying to cram so much in I, I feel like I'm getting the greatest hits and even the greatest hits are covers. I was asked recently by uh, a, another internet site to to do a sort of top five of Ridley Scott. And I found that after I did like Alien, Blade Runner, there was a long pause. Um, I love Alien and Blade Runner. I think they're two- Didn't Gladiator jump in there? Um, I think, well, this is my point. This is, this is the point I would make is, I think he's a brilliant director of four-star movies. I think the the Alien and Blade Runner are his masterpieces. And then he's made a big sack of four-star movies, all of which are really good, but m most of which I don't uh, necessarily love. So I, I think The Last Duel, I think I gave The Last Duel five stars when I reviewed it, but it's a little bit different reviewing it and sort of, you know, putting it in your sort of all-time greats or whatever. Uh, the Last Duel, interestingly enough as well, I think is almost like a, his Rosetta Stone also has a Napoleonic origin. Uh, <laughs> yes. Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, and I loved him standing on the box to look at the pharaoh. I thought that was really, uh, really well done. <laughs> yeah, the one comment about shortness, which I'll let pass, okay? Yeah, Fair but enough. it wasn't even really about shortness. It was just about this guy's in a casket and I need to, I want to look look at him face to face. Um, the Last Jewel strikes me as being like a, a, a Rosetta Stone for, for Ridley Scott's idea of history generally, which is I want to sort of go behind the the scenes i want to show you how a, a, a coliseum worked with this sort of modern 
sensibility with this sort of like it's like a celebrity it's like violent entertainment i'm gonna show you um the origin of muslim christian antipathy via the Med middle ages and i'm gonna take away the idea of knights being this romantic you know these crusaders being these romantic figures and it just uh, i'm going to take away christopher columbus being this amazing sort of heroic figure and show him as someone who was savage and brought slavery to the new world you know everywhere he looks at um at history he seems to be sort of wanting to get underneath the skin of it a bit more which is not the same as saying i want to say what really happened um because I don't think he's really interested in what really happened. He's interested. Ridley Scott is a visual director. He's interested in what looks good, and he's interested in in sort of giving an idea of lived experience. A lot of the things in Napoleon were felt to me like I didn't really feel uh, this was historically. I it didn't. It didn't seem. Or it didn't really just seem relevant. It seemed to be in. It seemed much of it seemed to be in Napoleon's head, you know. Much of it seemed to be like the Egypt thing. That felt like he was writing a letter to Josephine about, oh, and I fired a cannon at the pyramids. There's even a bit where <laughs> he says something to the. Are you Tsar. saying he's the American psycho? You know, it's all in the well, head. Basically, well, that that wouldn't be that wouldn't be a bad reading. There's a bit where he's talking to the Tsar and he says, and I said to the French. You know, I said to the British, <laughs> yes. you know, you lack honor and you lack money, and we both see in each other. And and the, the Tsar says, Oh, wait a minute, that's a saying. We have that saying. You didn't actually say that. It's a saying. And and he's like, Oh, well, whatever. We can both agree we hate the British. And it's just like, oh, you're a fabulist. You're just making this shit up. You know, I mean, you're not making well, it up. and he did in his own in his own memoirs, you know, there was these huge exaggerations. And you see this right at the end when he's talking to the two little girls and he goes, do you know who burnt, Ro uh, who burnt, who burnt Moscow? It was me. And they go, no, I think you'll find it was the Russians, you know. And that, do you know what? There were uh, those examples you just gave and particularly the talking with uh, Tsar Alexander the first is that I, I, okay, it's another weird. We have done. We've gone down a rabbit hole here. Okay, yeah. we've compared him to the Joker. We've yeah. compared to American Psycho. I'm going to do the worst one here. There were moments where he reminded me of. Uh, let's see if you know this reference. Arnold Rimmer from Red Dwarf. Oh yes, yeah, I remember. Yeah, I remember Red Dwarf definitely. Yeah, and sort of like the pompousness and the way Rimmer in his own head thinks he's amazing, and everyone else just thinks he's an utter loser. And and yeah, so it's not often that you you get. Joker, Rimmer, and Napoleon all in the same mix. But that's what I, that was my experience of it anyway. Absolutely. <laughs> Even when he, like, he got, the daughter of Josephine comes around to get a sword, who, by the way, I thought was a boy uh, at the beginning when, uh, when she came around. That was a boy. I, oh, was it? Because she turns up later as a girl. No, she had she had a boy and a girl. Ah, uh, okay. Okay. Well, that, that was weird that I didn't quite understand that. Anyway, but, um, uh, he goes into the room with all the swords and goes, mm, we really should have put names on these. <laughs> and just <laughs> picks a yeah, random yeah. sword. I mean, the, those were brilliant moments of like, all of these swords, by the way, is a life. These are all dead people. Yeah, yeah. You know, and he's just like, uh, 
I guess this one will do. And even he's standing at the door and he's kind of opens it. And in my head, he's just checking to make sure there's not a name engraved on it or something. It's just like <laughs> a curse to him. Oh, I better. No, no, it's blank. Okay, good. That's just like. Uh... <laughs> He doesn't want yeah, to. Yeah, I, no, I, absolutely. But you know, on on your point there about the, you know, each one of those, I, I thought that was a very beautiful way of saying, like, if this is, if each one of these are officers' swords, and they're all in the sort of like the storeroom, this tells you about the the number of dead. But again, this is where Britain and France have a completely different reading on the French Revolution. From the French perspective, it's always it was a necessary cleansing, and when you consider five thousand years, oh, sorry, five hundred years of corruption, it wasn't that much blood. But from the British perspective where we haven't had that kind of level of just raw crowd violence you know like literal execution after execution it was actually charles dickens in tale of two cities where you know that was his only book where he actually went back in time uh, and so, sort of set it against sort of historical events where we get a very british well, reading no, of this, no, 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 this no, where no, he no, really no, no. barnaby barnaby rudge barnaby rudge Apologies, apologies. Okay. Um, okay. But Thanks. Dickens really leans into the uh, the anarchy and the blood of it, which is the way Brit Britain has always seen it. Now, of course, it's probably somewhere in the middle. Okay, you know, this was bloody and probably was bloody necessary as well. Uh, but let's not forget that these people, just because you're rich, doesn't mean you should have your head removed. Uh, you know, that that's a very strong political opinion, and and France can't just pretend that it was a minor inconvenience. Uh, and you know, somebody like Josephine, I think they do a very good job of showing her survivor and that conversation with Napoleon going, I had to do things to just stay alive. Is this going to be a problem? You know, do you yeah. need to know about my past? I liked that. I thought she, you know, Josephine had a lot of agency in this movie. I love the bit where she's apologetic to him and she's basically being slut shamed and, and uh, you know, accused <laughs> of infidelity and all these things, which actually justifiably in, in terms of the cavalry officer. And then she turns it around and repeats exactly his words back. It's like she suddenly realizes, hang on a minute, this guy hasn't left yet. He's still here. He's not stormed out. I, I've told him everything. And he's not gone anywhere. And so you need me. Without me, you're nothing, you know. And that I thought that was brilliant. I really, I genuinely am looking forward to the longer version. Cause I and if they give me more of that and and not more battles, I'm quite happy to tell you the truth. I'm not, I I wouldn't because it to me that was the most interesting bits. I liked his oddness. I liked the oddness of the movie. I'm really impressed by how odd it was. Um, I, I find yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I, I just find that, and as you said earlier, the comedy I thought was was just brilliantly done. I I, I just found so much of it laugh out loud, funny, and and witty, and and you know. Even like him, the uh, brilliant Tahira him character, Paul Barris sticking his finger in the guy's hole, Robespierre's hole, where yes, he shot yes. and saying, "You missed," <laughs> you know. It's like <laughs> it's just that actually. I mean, he didn't stick the finger in the hole, but that happened. You know, he did try and kill himself, and and it, but yeah. So I mean, that, you know, I love these moments of history. Robespierre was a lot skinnier in my in my uh, uh, in my imagination. He, he was yes, um, but but I I just want to sort of um, you're talking there about like what's more. I think problem with Killers of Flower Moon, which I haven't really you know, mm. I, we mentioned in passing, mm. but you know um, 
Scott has said, who's got time for a three hour plus movie? Uh, thank you very much, Ridley. I appreciate that. You know, I, I watched all of Killers of Flower Moon and I, I, you know, it's three and a half hours long. And I sat there and went, this could be three hours. There are just moments when nothing is happening. And it's like, okay, it may be a beautiful moment between these two characters, but we've already had those. And I just felt it went on. To, you, if, you, if it was cut down to three hours, it's probably the right size and, and nothing game changing is going to be left on the cutting room floor it'll be very interesting to see what happens here because sometimes the longer versions you, you know the rhythms all off etc and it just feels much longer so i'm just i'm just curious have you seen killers of the flower moon yeah i watched it where was it can i think it when it opened uh, and and so what did you think do you think it was the right length or uh, no i got i i was looking at my watch at certain points in the movie definitely i mean i think the my problem with killers of flower moon uh, was that I think they started off with very good intentions trying to make a film about the Osage. But the fact that the Robert De Niro character is the character who's sort of most... Um, he, he's an interesting figure because he sort of is a white man who's very respectful of the Osage on the surface, but is absolutely... And maybe even believes himself to be the best thing that's happened to the Osage. He's somehow protecting them from themselves while robbing them and exploiting them and murdering them and all the rest of it. And I kind of felt that the film does a, follows a similar route in feeling that it's very respectful of the Osage, but then it puts its main character, uh, Lily Gladstone's character, it kind of puts her to bed for the second half of the movie. And that's and as yeah, soon as yeah, yeah, yeah. as soon as she's in bed, it's just like we're just watching the DiCaprio De Niro show. And it's it's good to see De Niro acting. It's it's I think DiCaprio gave one of the lesser convincing performances of his career so far. But any sort of sense of empathy where my empathy just disappeared because where am i supposed to put it that it's gone to bed and am i supposed to feel sorry for dicaprio i mean the man's an, a doofus who just wants money and uh, you know quite openly so i i found it a strangely unmoving film i mean i i'll happily re-watch it because lots of people who i very much respect are, are calling it a masterpiece but uh, for me, this year have, has been full of great filmmakers making okay films. You know, I would put David Fincher's The Killer. I think you said Oppenheimer well. was. Um, yeah, I've, I've now seen The Killer as well. I thought it was fine. I thought it was a very yeah. well put together. It was like an Audi, well put together, not going to be remembered in ten years' time. Yeah. But, um, yeah. I I, th I do think that Oppenheimer was probably a masterpiece. Oh, Oppenheimer is without doubt a masterpiece. Um, I did we talk to I talked to Tom Schoen about that. I think. Yes, I think I, think I, well, did I, mean, I know you, you you had a good debrief with somebody uh, with, with it. I can't I can't remember the name, but yeah, yeah, yeah. and and it, it's an if if you like, I, that's also a little bit like Napoleon in the sense that he he was a, a great man in the sense that he achieved something that nobody else has done in the whole of history, and again completely changed the world. But he, they don't let it let him off the hook. You know, no. they show him to be weak and arrogant and, you know, hubris and, you know. And so I, I like these sort of more multi-layered textured takes on these inverted commas great men from history. Yeah, absolutely. And much, much. I mean, I don't mind Braveheart being historically inaccurate. What I don't like about Braveheart is that it's just a power fantasy for a sort of you know, a, 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 a little bit of a fascistic, you know, 
super action hero you know he just wants to he just wants to be this and slightly weirdly masochistic as well by the end of it Oppenheimer on the other hand I, I thought was was rich nuanced clever I've since read the screenplay since my conversation with Tom and it reads like a brilliantly written novel it just reads so well it's like something the the screenplay that it most reminded me of was something like something Dennis Potter might have written in the 80s very fluid wow. very you know what I mean it doesn't worry about scene changes it breaks things down scenes can be long scenes can be a mere moment and it and it, it's so confident in that and when I heard that Christopher Nolan was being considered for the bond I was like, no, don't do it, don't do it, don't do it. You're too good. You're too good. You should be making, you know, Oppenheimer, Interstellar, you know, even if you want to make your Bond movie, make another Tenant, make something that, that you know, for all its flaws, is still original, you know, has still something something going on, which you haven't seen anywhere else. No, I, I absolutely agree with that. And and just to sort of put the three of these movies together, mm. you know, that you've got Oppenheimer, which, uh, as, as I've already said, well-reviewed and made a ton of money. Great. Mm. OK. Kills of Flower Moon, Napoleon probably aren't going to make their money back, but it's a different business model because of Apple. But both have been well-reviewed and both of them have got a lot of collar minches. And then at the same time this year, we've had flop after flop of superhero movies. So Hollywood is, if it's one thing, it's predictable and uh, it likes to follow trends. And hopefully what this will lead to is like, people are a little bit sick of spandex. Maybe we should do somebody else from history. I don't know who it is. I don't know what they would be doing. But I would, you know, the, there. it's been a long time since we've seen this level of interest and this level of effort put into historical movies. And even if they're flawed, because it has, you know, there is this argument from some filmmakers. It's like, look, I'm making a piece of entertainment. If you want to learn more, read a history book. Uh, and it's like, but I have been pestered a lot this week about, uh, you know, so what is true, Gem, about Napoleon and things like that? And that can only be a good, I'm not saying I'm the big uh, owner of Napoleon. There are there are you know far greater writers out there than, and historians than me. But at least we're being asked the questions, again, as opposed to who do you think is going to win Big Brother? Or have you seen Hulk 3? Or, or whatever. And 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 yeah, I mean, you know, history is everything. And, and something like Killers of the Flower Moon, I do think it's too long. I think all the performances are great. It, it's not perfect film, but I think it's a very, it's, a, it's an awesome film, you know, and Scorsese, if he was to die tomorrow, that would be a great one to go out on. But it's an example of showing some history, which isn't just white men in like togas or medieval armor. You know, history has broadened its its scope and we're all the better for it. Yeah, I I, I totally agree. I, I, I just want to pick up one final point before we close this off. You know, we're talking about films in terms of story, character acting, all that sort of stuff. But I'd, I'd just like to also point out production design, because if you look at Killers from the Flower Moon, it was designed by Jack Fisk, who did uh, There Will Be Blood. He did um, uh, a whole bunch of, of films, uh, which were uh, a whole bunch of Terence Malick movies, obviously, uh, my area of interest. And I think the look of the town when they first come into it is great. I think the look of Napoleon in certain moments is is really well done. And I think Oppenheimer for, perhaps is the best of all in terms of really recreating a sense of place in a way that um, we, we sometimes, especially with CGI being so commonly used, 
we get these sort of virtual backgrounds and it's like i mean napoleon suffered a little bit from that that i think in 10 15 years you'll rewatch napoleon and go yikes when when it comes to waterloo or austerlitz or something uh but oh can i just add to that yeah. because i you know i do enough of these sorts of things and visit enough of these places i love the fact that blenheim palace and, and so basically for all the human beings, they're in front of real stone and that will look fine. But Blenheim Palace was repurposed into the Kremlin. So basically from the roof up, that's all digital map painting. And it's like, OK, well done for using half of a of a stately home. Good, good stuff, guys. <laughs> yeah. Well, Moscow is actually the the kind of one of the most. Oh, what? This is Narnia or somewhere. Where, where are we? <laughs> you know? It's sort of. Yeah, yeah. He did go to war with the Ice Queen. Didn't you know that? <laughs> I always love that uh, that battle that he did just before Moscow, just you know, two hundred miles Borodino, uh, Borodino, where he held his men um, sort of in front of the 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 Russian artillery for way too long, and and you know, even though he won the battle, he won it with a massive losses loss of life on his own on his own part. Uh, but yeah, just to give you one of these sort of like little historian things, there is a, a pretty compelling argument that Napoleon was better when he had less troops. Austerlitz was like his peak. And again, he was outnumbered at Austerlitz. But the bigger the battle, like Waterloo, like Borodino, like the uh, the Battle of the Nations at Leipzig, yeah, Borodino was basically just two massive armies smashing into each other. There wasn't a lot of subtlety or manoeuvre. One of the things apparently that the, the French struggled with against the Russians is the Russians were so used to fighting the Ottoman Empire, which didn't surrender, uh, that they kept thinking, well, this is where the enemy breaks and runs away. But the Russians would just stay, stood there because they didn't want to be massacred by the Ottomans, not realizing the French actually fought by slightly different rules. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, you, look, there's no way you can put that level of, of subtlety or, or you know, history or, or historical accuracy into a movie like that. But I just, you know, for your listeners, it's an interesting idea that the bigger the army he had, the less original Napoleon actually was. The other last thing I'll say is, uh, you know, on the technical stuff is, you know, he outflanked people. He he outmaneuvered people. He came up with innovations and he did really clever things. But if you've been fighting the same enemy for 20 years, you learn their tricks. And so, again, by Waterloo, Napoleon had nothing in his in in the tank that uh, you know, that Wellington couldn't anticipate or neutralize or had already come up with a new counter to. Yeah, because, I mean, uh, in the Italian campaign, uh, he, he sort of he he uh, scared everybody with how fast he could go because they didn't have yeah. provisions they just lived off the land which uh, which then wellington did when he was uh, fighting the peninsula war and and you know it was sort of like jürgen klopp and pep guardiola learning from each other <laughs> <laughs> yeah let's throw football in there as well why not why not why not listen jem who's who would you like to see a big movie made of next what, what sort of historical figure deserves that's easy because it, um the the person who i really like you can't, um, is say, somebody you, you can't say yourself <laughs> uh, that would be a very boring movie no um uh edward the third king of england uh, he has never had a movie or tv show ever about him and yet this is a guy who started the hundred years war he fought in multiple battles the uh the black death arrived in england during his reign so he had to deal with like armageddon where half of europe dies okay how do you deal with that and 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 you know when he started off he, he was basically under house arrest because his mother had killed his father 
father and she was having an affair with this other guy. I mean, this is a pretty good story, which I've got no idea why literally nobody is interested in making. That's the one for me. That's sounds- uh, by the way, if anybody's listening to this and wants uh, wants some help on a screenplay, I'm available. Excellent. Well, I'll be actually. We'll we'll talk after the record. <laughs> <laughs> I'm trying to think what would happen with, if the Black Death arrived now with the no vaxxers. Would they be like, oh, this is just a false flag? And- I'm going to say Mother Nature's going to look look after that one all by itself. Brilliant, fantastic. Okay, listen, Jem, that's a uh, that's a absolutely brilliant talking to you again, and I hope we can uh, get together when in the future, whenever there's a there's a big historical film to. To, to go go into and let's hope this trend continues i prefer talking about these films to to i mean i love comic books and i james Peaty, i'm happy to talk to him any day of the week about comic books as well but uh this- he was great fun i, I loved his episode Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.